Would you pray with me? Father, to you alone indeed is the glory, the honor, the power, the victory, the praise, and worship and adoration of your people. You have said that the rich man is not to glory in his wealth, the wise man is not to glory in his wisdom, or the mighty man to glory in his strength, but we're to glory only in you. And might we do that today with a fresh infilling and empowerment of your spirit. Might we not only do it today, but in each and every day, for all of creation is the theater, the surround sound through which you've revealed your astounding glory. You've revealed your glory in the scriptures, especially in the glorious gospel of grace. And you've supremely revealed your glory in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom alone we stand and in whom we live and move and have our very being. Father, forbid that we should glory in anything except in Christ. Strip us of every false refuge. Strip us of every false anchor upon which we are basing our hopes for time and eternity. Might we find in Christ today one who ever lives to make intercession for us. Might we find in him today strength for the journey, consolation for every troubled heart. Father, we come boldly to your throne today because of Jesus And you've commanded that we pray for those in positions of civil authority and responsibility. And we do so today, thanking you for the benefits and blessings that we enjoy as citizens of this country. Father, we pray that you would be pleased to raise up strong, godly leadership at every level of life in America, at the federal, the state, and the local level. That we may lead lives that are characterized by peace, by quiet, and by godliness. Father, we continue to pray for those who are abroad on a missions trip, knowing that they will be traveling home, some tomorrow, others on Wednesday. We pray for their safe travel, that you would uphold them, keep them, and sustain them. We pray that the fruit of the gospel that's been proclaimed and demonstrated in ministry would bear much fruit in coming days there in Europe. And Father, for all of our needs today, our hearts are open before you. You know them. We pray that you would show your sufficiency, your grace, and your strength. And as we prepare now to give, we know that we are the humble recipients of rich provisions. And might we use these provisions wisely? Might we invest them toward a redemptive end? Might they be invested in the kingdom of God and bring forth incredible praise to the glory of your grace? Give us wisdom to manage wisely the resources that you've entrusted to us. Use them now as we give for your own sovereign ends. For all this we pray in the name that's above every name, even the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. I'm going to finish the text this morning that we began several Sundays ago. Dr. Young will be back in the pulpit next Lord's Day. But um, I wanted to select a passage of Scripture, quite frankly, that would make much of Christ that would encourage us to look to him who is the author and the finisher of our faith. And there are numerous passages that would do that, but I think particularly this passage, John chapter 17, recording the prayer of Jesus, pulls back a veil, if you will, and enables us to eavesdrop upon this fellowship, this communion between Christ and his Father and our Father This is a summary of the substance of which Jesus is presently engaged in intercession, even as we're gathered here this Lord's Day. 
One of the earliest and most substantial Bible lessons that perhaps many of us, if not all of us, have ever learned is contained in a short and simple song. That song goes something like this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. One renowned theologian by the name of Karl Barth, we wouldn't subscribe to all that Karl Barth would embrace and teach, but he said the most profound lesson that he ever learned from the Bible. In fact, theology, he believed, could be summarized in that simple statement that Jesus loves me. And this prayer in John chapter 17 breathes the love of Christ for his Father. And it breathes the love of Christ for those whom the Father has given him. It is the longest of Christ's recorded prayers. His life and ministry, as I said in August 14th, the first Sunday that we were in John 17, his life and ministry was punctuated by prayers. But this is the longest recorded prayer. And we've seen that in the opening verses, in verses 1 through 5, he prays initially for himself, simply one petition, that God would glorify him, that he in turn might glorify the Father. Last Lord's Day, we were in verses 6 through 19, in which Christ prayed for the disciples in that context, but in a representative capacity, prayed for disciples in every age. And he basically requested two things for those who would follow him in verses 6 through 19. He prayed that we would be preserved in the world, that we would be preserved from the evil one, the very thing that he taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, to not lead us into temptation, but to deliver us from the evil one. And then Jesus, as we discovered last week, prayed that you and I might be sanctified, that is, consecrated, set apart for the Lord and for his use, and that we would be set apart through means of the truth, the word of the living God that convicts and cleanses and edifies and encourages and is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. Jesus prayed that you and I would be devoted entirely to the Father through the truth of God's Word. And then finally, in this text this morning that will be before us in verses 20 through 26, Jesus expands the prayer and he prays for all who would believe on him through the gospel. Would you follow with me as we pick up in John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20 and reading through verse 26. I do not pray for these alone, says Jesus, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I've given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you've given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Several places in the New Testament, Christ is referred to 
as being a great high priest. The Old Testament, particularly in books like Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, pictures the coming ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in this Old Testament system of worship, which was centered in one whom the Bible calls and whom God ordained to be a great high priest. Jesus, as our priest, came and he offered a sacrifice, a full, final, and eternally sufficient sacrifice for sin. He offered himself as the Lamb of God without spot and without blemish to cleanse us and to wash away our sins and to bear the penalty of God's broken law, to bear the penalty of sin and sinners like us. But that's not all that Christ's priestly ministry involves or entails. The Scripture also says in several places, in Romans 8 and in Hebrews 7, that this same Jesus now lives to make intercession for you and for me in the very presence of God. He appears in the presence of God as our mediator. That is, he joins God and he joins us together as our mediator. He appears in the presence of God as our petitioner. We go to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Hebrews, which celebrates this ministry of Jesus, says that that as our great high priest, we're able to come to God and obtain mercy. We're able to come to God and obtain grace in our time of need because Jesus is there and because he ever lives to make intercession for us. God's word is very clear about this intercessory ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this prayer that's before us this morning and this Lord's Day, there are several requests, several petitions that I would call your attention to, things that Jesus again lays before the God, the God of, uh, of his people and his God, things that Jesus lays before them and things for which he prays. The first thing that Jesus prays for is found in verses 20, 21, 22, and 23, and it's simply this. Jesus prays that his followers, those who would believe in him, those who would hear the gospel and in whom the Spirit of God would work faith and repentance, would be one. That they would be unified, that they would come together as one people under one God, under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Christ prays for the present unity of his followers. This is a bold request because so much of Life in a flawed and fallen world is marked by division and disunity. Were you to read history, or even today, if you were to look at the the front page, or CNN, or Fox, or whomever you receive your news from, and you look at the international world, you look at international politics and government, so much of life on this planet is marked by division and disunity. The history of man is marked by one ending series of conflicts after another. In fact, uh, the United Nations might be a great oxymoron, I'm not sure, but it's anything but united. If you were to look at the national level, look at national, our national government, federal government, national politics, it's marred by petty partisan politics. We're seldom able to forge any kind of united alliance on any given issue. If you look at the state level or look at the local level, you recognize and hear often squabbles over this or over that. We very seldom see unity for any period of time on any given level. If you like sports as I do, there are few dynasties in the sports world today because 
teams are unable to sustain the ego-driven tactics of athletic prima donnas who love the spotlight, who want to be in the forefront, who want more and more money. Look at neighborhood and community life. Often, our neighborhoods and our communities are marked by disunity, adding to the stress of life in the suburbs. Uh, Melinda and I attended our first homeowners association in Fort Myers, Florida. Let me stipulate this was in Fort Myers, Florida. And when we left that evening, I felt like we had been at a Mid-South Wrestling taping on Saturday morning. That was at its best. At its worst, I felt like I was on the set of the Jerry Springer show. The, the, the verbal insults, the profanity, the veiled and unveiled threats that passed, and the long, stony silence that developed out of these neighborhood association meetings is just incredible. Sometimes we experience division and strife and disunity even within our own families. This is an incredible request. The night of his betrayal, subsequent arrest and crucifixion, our Lord prays that those who are called by his name, those who would believe and embrace the gospel, might experience unity. That is, that they might be one. Well... It's a bold request, and Jesus repeats it four times, twice in verse 21. Father, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. Again, in verse 21, that they also may be one in us. In verse 22, Jesus again pleads that they may be one just as we are one. And again, in verse 23, Jesus prays that we may be made perfect, that is, complete in one. The unity that Jesus prays for, I believe, is a spiritual unity. He's not praying for an organizational unity. He's not praying that there would be one massive, monolithic church under one banner. He's not praying that we would all cross our T's and dot our I's in exactly the same place. He's not praying that we would all like the same kind of music and love the same kind of color that's going to be placed in the sanctuary. He's praying that we might experience a spiritual unity, which he defines in verse 20, 21 and following as the kind of unity that exists within the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. He prays that we might experience a oneness of heart, a oneness under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible gives us some wonderful images of what unity would be like, of what unity is like under the Lordship of Christ. It gives us these wonderful images because we seldom see any images of unity anywhere else. We seldom experience unity in the workplace with labor, management conflicts, with personality clashes. Sometimes we even fail to experience unity within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Bible gives us hope and it gives us pictures of what this unity might look like. It gives us the picture of a great spiritual family that's ever growing as more and more people embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. We have one Father, even God. In this family, Jesus is called our elder brother. He calls us his brethren in Hebrews chapter 2. We have one Spirit, the Spirit of the living God who fills and inhabits all of us. We share a common life, eternal life. We share a common destiny. Heaven is really our home. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, therefore. 
And you know, the neat thing about this is we didn't create this family. We didn't cause ourselves to be born again. We didn't cause ourselves to be adopted into this family. Therefore, we cannot pick and choose who our brothers and sisters in Christ are. Reminds me of the little boy who uh, was fretting in church one time, kept standing up on the pew, and his dad kept pushing him back down. And finally, his dad said, son, you stand up again, and I'm going to take you out and spank you. And the little boy looked at his dad and said, you know, I didn't ask to be born into this family. And his father said, that's right, you didn't. If you had, the answer would have been no. You and I didn't choose to be born into the family of God. We've not picked our brothers and our sisters in Christ. But God gives us this picture of this great spiritual family. The other image that God gives us is that of a fellowship. The word fellowship, koinonia in the Greek text, means sharing things in common, holding things in common. And what is it that we hold in common? We hold the truth of the gospel in common. We hold a shared mission, a shared identity in Christ in common. We have all things in common, the Bible tells us and describes for us in very vivid detail. In fact, in this prayer, I uh, didn't call attention to this because, frankly, there's so much in this prayer. But some of the things that we hold in common are the things that Jesus alludes to in this prayer Jesus prays that our joy in verse 13 might be full, the joy of Jesus filling our lives. We share in a common joy. We share in a common pursuit of holiness through the truth of God. We share in a common mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to make disciples of all nations. We share the same love of God. All of these things we share in together. We're a vast and growing community that shares life in Christ together. How do we share in life together at Gracie Van? Well, we share life in Christ together as we gather on a Lord's Day morning such as this. And we stand and sing together great anthems of our faith. As we remind ourselves that God is the ruler over all things and that to Him alone is the glory. We share that in common. We remind ourselves that we're all creatures of our God and King. We hold that in common. We share together in life in Christ at Gracie Van by moving from a celebration of worship into congregational communities. And there are 14 of them that meet in different parts of our church campus on Sunday morning. Classes, Bible classes, where the Word of God is taught and life in Christ is shared. We share in life in Christ together in something we call grace groups, where we meet in homes and we demonstrate love and care for one another and prayer and study of God's Word and fellowship. All of these are means by which we share in the fellowship that is ours in Christ. The Bible gives us, God gives us pictures of this unity. It's like a family. It's like a fellowship. And it's like a body. Were you to separate a part of your body this morning, a member of your body from the rest of your body, It would lose its life and function and vitality. And yet God calls his church a body. It's been fitly joined together. Christ is the head and we are members of one another. And it's always disastrous when we're separated. It never comes to a good end when we're separated from one another. And so Jesus in this first petition prays that we might experience a oneness together as his people. 
Well, what would this prayer then call for from us? First of all, it would call for an obedient response, wouldn't it? If this is the thing for which Jesus prays, this is the night that he would be betrayed, arrested, crucified on the next day to purchase our salvation, and he's praying that we might be one as his people, would that not call for an obedient response? Would that not call for humility on our part? Would it not call for us to pursue an awareness of the family of God, the fellowship and the body to which we belong by grace alone? And you can live out the application of Jesus' prayer. On every Lord's Day morning as you stand with the other people of God here and worship Him and proclaim His praise. You can live out the application of this prayer as you move into your congregational communities, as you move into body life and grace groups, as you participate in ministry and missions trips. You can experience the unity for which Jesus prays. And when you succumb to the temptations for disunity, and they abound, do they not? Do they not abound for us to separate and divide from brothers and sisters in Christ? When we succumb to the inclination or those temptations, we can repent because we know that Jesus is praying that we might be one. We can repent and humble ourselves before the Lord and before brothers and sisters in Christ and men fences because we know that we're disobeying the intent of our Lord's prayer. Jesus in this final section prays for unity, but then he also prays very quickly in verse 24 for a future glory. The thing for which Jesus prays, the last thing for which he asks the Father is that we might be with him where he is and behold his glory. I'm reading from the New King James Version. In verse 24, Jesus says, I desire that they be with me. The word is somewhat stronger, phileo. It means I will. And perhaps you have a translation that uses that word. But Jesus expresses will and intention. I will, O oh God, that they be with me where I am. There's a wonderful promise in John 14. Verses 1, 2, and 3, where he says, I'm going away and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And in my Father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go away, I'm coming back. And I'm coming back that you might be with me. This prayer undergirds the promise. Jesus says, oh God, all of those whom you've given me, all of them, I want them to be with me someday. And I want them to behold my glory. After the ascension of Christ, he was robed again in a glory that's brighter than the noonday sun. We can scarcely imagine it. But the Bible gives us some glimpses. Paul says we look now through a glass dimly, but then we walk by faith now, but then our faith will become sight. And we get some glimpses of this glory of Jesus and what it will be like to be with him. As Stephen was being martyred in Acts 7, he beheld the glory of the risen and reigning Christ. Paul in Acts 9, at his conversion, when he was going to Damascus, beheld the risen and reigning glory of Jesus Christ. Paul, and caught up to heaven in 2 Corinthians 12, says, I've seen things that I can't even tell you about. But I know this, brothers and sisters, that eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and neither has it entered into the heart the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And Jesus' prayer will be answered. 
You and you and you and as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself will someday be with Jesus and behold him in all of his glory. I don't know what that will be like, but the Bible gives us some wonderful pictures, doesn't it? We're concerned when we read the book of Revelation about date setting and when all these things are going to happen. Do you know what the, the, Revelation, the book of Revelation really is? It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And repeatedly throughout this book, you have the unveiling of the glory of Jesus. In Revelation chapter 5, it says that the 24 elders, whoever they may be, beheld him. And they began to sing to him, worthy are you, O Lord. The angels in heaven behold his glory and they ascribe worth and majesty to him. Revelation 5 says, all of creation beholding the glory of Christ joins in lifting their voice and saying, Blessing and glory and honor and power be unto the Lord and to the Lamb of God. I don't know all that that will be, but as the shadows lengthen now in my mid-years, it lies in my heart like a burning coal. All the things that God has in store for those who love Him. The Lord has given us His Spirit to secure all of these saving benefits to us, to apply all that Jesus has wrought for us and worked for us. God has given His Spirit to you to apply that to your life. I've not walked the streets of gold. I've not really talked to anyone who has. I've not smelled the air of the celestial city. But I have the down payment of the greater things yet to come. In the person and pledge of the Holy Spirit. Melinda and I were here briefly at the latter end of March on a whirlwind tour looking at houses. I can't tell you how many houses we looked at. She was in the front seat with the real estate agent. I was in the back seat. I couldn't tell you where all we went. Finally, we found a house in Collierville and it seemed to be the one. We had prayed that God would lead us. We believe that he did. Melinda was flying back on Sunday, April the 3rd. And so on Friday, we gave a check to the real estate agent as a what? A down payment, as earnest money. We said, we're interested in this house, and would you hold it for us? This is a pledge of our interest. Do you know what the Holy Spirit is called in 2 Corinthians 1? He's called an Arabon, A-R-R-A-B-O-N. Do you know what that literally means? It means he is the pledge. He's the down payment. He's the earnest money. God has given his spirit and placed his spirit inside of you so that you will know that all that Jesus has done and all that Jesus has prayed for will come to pass. He has secured us against that day. And so here Jesus at the end of this great triumphant prayer, this great intercessory prayer pleads with the Father and says, Oh God, I want them to be with me that they may behold my glory. You know, the Bible tells us that not only will we be with Jesus, but we're going to be like him. We're going to be like him in character, the struggle with sin and misery so unnatural that normal in this life is over. We shall be like our Savior in holiness, truth, and love. And perhaps grander still in this body-conscious culture and age in which we live, we're going to be like him, not only in soul and in heart and spirit, but we're going to be like him in body as well. Philippians 3, 20, Paul imprisoned in a Roman 
jail, awaiting an uncertain fate, reminds himself and believers in every generation that Christ is going to someday subdue this body of our humiliation and make it like his entirely. We're going to bear the divine imprint fully and perfectly. The result is that this corruptible body is going to put on incorruption. This mortal body is going to put on immortality. And death will be swallowed up in life forevermore. May God's name be praised. And may the prayers of Jesus Christ resonate within our hearts as he has prayed for God's glory to be reflected in his life, as he has prayed that you might be preserved in the midst of a fallen world from the world itself and from the evil one, as he's prayed that you might be increasingly set apart by his truth and made more useful in his service, as he's prayed that you and I might come together as one, and that someday as one people we will be catapulted into the very presence of Christ himself and there behold his glory. Honestly, does this prayer encourage your heart Do the final petitions, particularly this last petition, encourage your heart? Do they, perhaps with the Spirit's application, break in upon your soul? An honest answer to that may indicate a true spiritual state as to whether or not we're encouraged by the intercession of Jesus, whether or not we're encouraged that someday we shall behold Him. Why not begin now to spend time with Him in His Word and in His prayer to draw near to Him On a day-by-day basis. Why not now begin to draw near to Jesus as we observe the Lord's Supper on a monthly basis. As the bread is broken and we're reminded of Christ and the cost of our salvation. Why not even now begin to feed upon Him in the simple elements of the Lord's table? Why not renew your commitment and desire to belong completely to Christ every time we witness a baptism? Why not begin now? To pursue Christ's likeness by asking the Holy Spirit of God to fill out the contours of your life and character with more of Jesus. What is the guarantee that this prayer will be answered? What is the guarantee that these things will come to pass? Just a final note. Look at verse 23, the latter end of it. Jesus has prayed here that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you sent me. What a potent witness to the world to find the united people of God. And then he appends this at the end of verse 23, that they have, that you have loved them as you have loved me. This in and of itself would pay dividends to think on this for a long time. Can I just, because of time, tell you what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that God loves you with the same fervency, the same intensity, the same eternality with which he loves his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It means that God can never love you less. He can never love you more because he loves you as if you were Jesus himself. How do we know that these five petitions of Christ will be answered? Because of the love of God that's been poured out upon us, because he accepts us and receives us and loves us, as much as if we were Jesus himself. The 19th century Scottish pastor and hymnist George Matheson was born with an eye defect that eventuated in his blindness at 18 years of age. He was engaged to be married, but his fiancée broke their engagement because 
She didn't think she could endure the hardship and suffering of being married to a blind man. And out of his deep disappointment, Matheson wrote a great hymn of our faith. It's entitled, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. Matheson says, Love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, thine, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. There is much in this life that will disappoint you. There's much in this life that will crush you and break your heart. But here's a love in these petitions that will not fail you. Here is a love that will not let you go. May I commend this Jesus to you from this text. May I commend to you the intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ for every weary and burdened and troubled heart here today. Here is a love that will not let you go. Here is a love that ever lives to make intercession for you. Father, we are so grateful for the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. May our hearts never lose the the wonder and the adoration of it all. Might you deepen love for Christ in us. And might every heart and every home be encouraged to know that the Savior of sinners, the friend of sinners, is the same one who now is in the very presence of God pleading and praying for his people. Grant it, Father, for Christ's sake, for his honor, and for his glory. And in his name we pray. Amen.